Welcome. You are listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, and this is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. While it's always better to hear it live, this is a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. Enjoy our latest installment. Shabbat Shalom. With the fall classic on the horizon and my beloved Dodgers tearing up the NL West, it's high time we talk about baseball. <laughs> Though strange as it sounds, about something that never happened. You may have seen the article in the Wall Street Journal last month, written by a former congregant of mine in Chicago days, Jonathan Ike. Ike tells of the 1947 incident at Cincinnati's Crosley Field as the Brooklyn Dodgers played the Cincinnati Reds. Jackie Robinson had crossed the color line of Major League Baseball the month before, a debut that had been greeted with death threats, boycotts, and countless pitches thrown at his head. Things reached a boiling point on that August day with the Cincinnati fans subjecting Robinson to a fusillade of vitriolic hate jeering. And it was at that moment that Robinson's teammate, shortstop Pee Wee Ro- Reese, a white man from Kentucky, crossed the field and put his arm around his teammate, a gesture that quieted the crowd and sent a message to the stadium and the nation. If you saw the Jackie Robinson film, 42, you'll remember the emotional scene. In Brooklyn, there's actually a statue depicting the embrace. There's even a children's book called The Teammates, canonizing the incident for future generations. A beautiful, iconic exchange told from generation to generation, an exchange that I explains is made up of whole cloth. I encourage you to read the article, but in brief, Ike's research reveals that in the days to follow, the press made no mention of the hug. The only comment from Robinson about Cincinnati's Crosley Field was that it was a nice experience. In interview after interview, Rachel Robinson's um, Jackie's centenarian widow shares that no such hug ever happened, and if it did happen, She is sure it was neither at that time or place. One of the greatest and most memorable moments of sports history, as close to the truth as the ending of Robert Redford's The Natural is to the ending of Malamud's book by the same name, which is to say, not at all. The most interesting part of Ig's article, however, is not the story of the hug or even the debunking of the myth but Ike's thoughts as to why the story exists in the first place. In Ike's view, the myth of Reese's hug inaccurately credits him, and by extension, the white establishment as having eased Robinson's entry into the major leagues. The hard truth is that both Robinson's teammates and their wives kept their distance from Jackie until they realized that Jackie's success on the field would result in their own financial success. Then and only then did they warm to him. More accurate and more to the credit of Robinson is to focus on Robinson's resilience and courage 
in the face of his racist detractors and his non-embracing teammates. The hug never happened, but the story of the hug, the statue of the hug, are all, if you will, hugs that we give ourselves to make ourselves feel better rather than confront the truth of what actually happened or, as is the case, never actually happened. To be human is to be an inveterate storyteller. The narratives we construct, the true ones, the untrue ones, and the ones that we tell ourselves are true but are actually not, are all acts of self-construction, prisms of understanding by which we build our identities. We do it all the time as a nation. The story of Plymouth Rock, the story of George Washington cutting down the cherry tree. We tell all sorts of stories to clean up our prickly past or to provide heroic origins to our leaders. We put the spotlight on certain moments and we elide the uncomfortable ones at the expense of telling the full story. In Darehorn's latest book, for instance, she dismantles American Jewry's myth of our ancestors' immigrant names being changed at Ellis Island. Far more comfortable, Horn explains, than for American Jewry to admit to the well-documented fact that we willfully changed our names as part of our efforts to assimilate into a less than hospitable America, we insist on the legend of the bumbling immigration agent thus retaining a sweetly nostalgic but historically inaccurate connection to the old world. The best example, biblically speaking, of our penchant to pick and choose to intentionally and artfully craft the stories of our lives is in this week's Parsha, in the description of the First Fruits Festival. Upon bringing the first fruit of the annual harvest to Jerusalem's temple, the ancient Israelite farmer is instructed to recite a brief epitome of Israel's history that appears in the Passover Haggadah. It's as interesting as what is not in it as what is. My father, writes, was a fugitive Aramean. He went down to Egypt with meager numbers and sojourned there, but there he became a populous nation. The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and oppressed us. They imposed heavy labor upon us. We cried to God, the God of our ancestors, and God heard our plea and our oppression, and God freed us by a mighty hand and outstretched arm, awesome power and signs and portents, bringing us to this land flowing with milk and honey, where I now bring the first fruits of the soil which you, God, have given to me. At first blush, the passage is not noteworthy, a familial story of a people enslaved and redeemed. But as we dig deeper, the choices as to what's included and excluded are altogether remarkable. Who is this mysterious fugitive Aramean, the shared ancestor to us all? Why is there no mention of Moses, of Pharaoh, of the Song at the Sea, of Mount Sinai? No mention of the wilderness wanderings at all. What do we make of this version of the story that leaps from liberation to first fruits, tells it so differently than the other books of the Bible, the Psalms. It is, according to biblical scholars, the most ancient of tellings of the Israelite story, a telling made curious due to its manifold idiosyncrasies, emphases, and omissions. And while I won't get into the volumes of scholarship untangling the intent of the diverse renditions of ancient Israel's history, 
the point is one and the same. Our stories, even and perhaps especially our sacred canonical stories, are acts of self-construction, realities we've created for ourselves, true and untrue, narratives that reflect a series of choices by which we tell others and ourselves who we are and would like to think we are. The observation that the tales we tell of ourselves are non-veridical constructions of reality is an observation that's neither new nor terribly interesting. We all know we do it, and we know that others do it too. But what is interesting, what is really interesting, is the cascade of implications that such an observation has on the work of these weeks prior to the holidays, these works, weeks of introspection and relationship repair that we are called on in the run-up of Yom Kippur. I have a friend who is fond of reminding me that people's perception is their reality. What I think he means by this, though it's only my perception, is that the stories we construct for ourselves, the joys, the sorrows, the hurts, the betrayals, real or imagined, are our truths, the realities in which we take shelter and refuge. I'm reminded of Kafka's comment that everyone is necessarily the hero of their own imagination. The fault is always with my sibling, not me. My coworker, not me. My spouse, not me. Look at what you made me do. Our moral lapses always fall on another person or on society, but never on us. We tell ourselves all sorts of stories to keep our hands and hearts clean, making ourselves the protagonist, the victim, the morally sympathetic character in the tales we tell. But here's the thing, the uncomfortable truth that we have to confront at this time of year. Your story, the story that you've been telling yourself, comforting yourself, justifying yourself, and taking shelter in all this time, may not be as true as you think it is. Now is the time to pressure test our stories, to re-examine them, to poke at them and ask, how did we arrive at them? Now is the time to break the idols of our self-righteous echo chambers. We have to do so because we need to allow for the fact that that other person, that sibling, that spouse, that coworker, that friend, has a totally different reality in which they live. No different than we and ours, they too are the heroes of their stories. The thank you card to which you were just too swamped to write, the dinner invitation that you didn't have time to reciprocate, the money that you said you were gonna Venmo but never did and they really don't need the money anyway. It is human to pad ourselves from our sharp edges with self-soothing stories. None of us could make it through the day if we didn't. But those self-soothing stories are our stories, not theirs. They have their own versions of the stories. And let me tell you, in their versions, you are not as endearing, as congenial, and as sympathetic as you make yourself out to be. I am sure that in the year gone by, there have been real wrongs committed, things which individuals have to seek forgiveness and grant forgiveness in order to enter the coming year in strength. I am doubly sure that in most cases, in the storehouse of our bruised relationships, nobody has done anything so irredeemable. In most cases, our fractured relationships are reflections of the competing truths we're all carrying around. 
and our unwillingness to concede that our stories have to live alongside the stories of others. All of which is why we need to share our stories. I can't promise you that between now and Yom Kippur, everyone's gonna make up with everyone. But what I can tell you is that there are certain paths that have a better chance of succeeding than others. Do not, I repeat, do not start any conversation aimed at reconciliation with the sentence or sentiment of what normal person would do such a thing. <laughs> Try starting the conversation with a tone of modesty, humility, and a willingness to listen. Invite that person out for a coffee, saying you'd love to talk. Qualify your words by acknowledging that you're only party to one side of the story, your side. Use I language. This is what I experienced. This is how that moment felt for me. This is why I was hurt. Then ask that person to share their story, their truth, their version of what happened. Seek to understand if you want to be understood. And then do the most important thing of all. Stop talking. Just stop. Just listen. Listen to their narrative. Squirm in their truth. Listen and ask yourself if there were cues that you missed a moment in which you could have acted differently. Listen with the same grace that you would want to be listened to. I can't promise you that it will all be tied up neatly in a bow. It's entirely possible that the two of you will discover that you operate in two different and incompatible realities. But what I suspect will happen is this. I suspect that conversation will reveal that that person in front of you is not the unfeeling ogre that you've made them out to be. I suspect that you will discover that your story, the story you've told yourself all this time, is not quite as airtight as you think it is. Most of all, I suspect you'll discover that when two people sit down together, seeking reconciliation, presuming positive intent, and listening to each other with a generosity of spirit, then those two people, no matter the hurt, will discover that they're not as far apart as they thought that it was more about miscommunication than malice, more an oversight than ill intent, and that the chest-clearing conversation can be the first step towards understanding and reconciliation. Slichot services begin this evening, and with them we formally begin the holiday season. Tradition teaches that the record of our lives, the book of life, sits open. We would do well to remember that only God in heaven is in possession of the whole story. The books sitting in front of each of us contain only one point of view, our own. Everyone has their own book, their own version, their own truth. I can think of no better way than to spend the weeks ahead than sitting down with those people we love most, those people with whom we were once close but are no longer, and share our stories and listening to each other's so that maybe, just maybe, we will enter the new year having hugged it out for real, ready to draft a shared narrative together. Shabbat Shalom. Yeah.
Thank you for listening to Park Avenue Podcasts, a place to be to catch the music, sermons, and select programs of Park Avenue Synagogue. If you like what you are hearing or want to learn more about the community, please check out our website at www.pasyn.org. See you in shul.